0: Welcome again. Jack, you're looking good today. I see that Christmas coat. So when I was in college, first started really taking, what I would say, taking responsibility for my own faith. Most of you know what that looks like. Some of you have not yet experienced that yet. But it's this time when I chose to go to church. I chose to follow Christ. I chose to read the scriptures for myself. I I chose to be part of what he was calling me to. And in that, uh, one of the skills I I learned early on is the discipline of journaling. So you get a little book, and each day you write out things like, what's God, what's he saying to you from his word? What's he doing in your life? What's going on in your heart? And each day I would I would write things out, just little things, and and in that I I got quite a collection. This is actually just the ones that I decided to bring. I have whole shelves. And uh, so I've been doing that for a while. And when I was probably two years into this journaling thing, I I sat down one day, and I was just in a real funk. And I sat down to journal, and uh, it's just scathing stuff coming out. And then I stopped and I thought, you know what? This sounds really, really familiar. And so I stopped and I went back to some of my old journals and I started leafing through it And I was like, wait, wait a second. I wrote this exact same thing six months ago. And then I went to this journal. And I said, I wrote it a year ago and I wrote it 18 months ago and I wrote it 24 months ago. And the more I started looking through my journals and looking through how God was working and moving in my life, I found a pattern emerged. I know not all of you can see this, but you'll, you'll get the point. I found that the times when I really started journaling were when I was really low, when I was in a funk. And it was a time of, of just where I was self-focused. And it was usually a time when I just hate, frankly hated myself. And it was self-loathing. I felt guilty. I felt dirty. I felt filthy. And I just knew I had to do something. Something had to change. And so I had this self-focus. It was hatred, loathing, guilt. And then from that, though, God would give me this repentance. Blessed are those who mourn. And from that, I would get a God focus. And in that, if if you read a couple weeks after my funky time, I would have this beautiful time. Where my life was just filled, I was just enamored by the fact that God would love someone like me. And that changed everything. When my eyes came off of myself, and I stopped looking at how bad I was, and started looking at how good he was, like it just changed everything. And those are the times in my life where I'm just on like this mountaintop high. Where during that time, my, my life is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's, it's consumed with worship because God is, is that good. But just follow that along a little ways. And inevitably, I came to a point where I started taking all that for granted. And I went from from thinking about how good God was to I started thinking about, God must really think I'm pretty good. (laughs) I mean, if God loves me, I must be something special. So I started focusing on myself again. and, And at that point, something happened where... I didn't realize it, but that entire time, once I got over this point, I was actually falling the whole time. And it certainly what would happen is that it would go from self-focus to if I'm pretty good, well then I deserve whatever I want and I can do what I want. You know, it's not, I wouldn't do those sinful things. So those guards that I put on my life down here because I was so afraid of sinning. I, I would drop those. And the next thing you know, I would get completely apathetic. You know, I'm pretty good. It's OK. And that apathy would crash into this thing, some grotesque sin in my life. And usually just one of two, three, four that I always ran into. And then I would come crashing. And I hated myself. And that would last for a while. I wouldn't journal during that time usually until I decided I am at a point I have to change. I'd pick up a journal again. I'd start writing. I'd feel so guilty. And then I would focus on God and his graciousness. Then after a while, I'd get tired of that. I'd focus on myself again. And then I'd crash into a grotesque sin. I saw this repeated time after time. I mean, it was to a point where after that, after I realized that, I started looking at that. I realized there's almost nothing I can do. I'm on this roller coaster over and over and over again. Like it goes from guilt to worship to apathy and grotesque sin. To guilt. To worship. So during that time, uh, that's when I started like frantically trying to search for answers. That's when I got introduced to Thomas Akempis. To St. Francis de Sales. To Augustine. To Martin Luther. To Benedict to uh, Jonathan Edwards, I started reading all the devotional classics saying there has to be an answer here In, in, in 2000 years of people trying to work out their faith in Christ, there has to be a way to avoid these two extremes of guilt and apathy. Like how do people do it? And I, I found out that Augustine struggled with a lot of sin. And I found out that Martin Luther famously struggled with guilt and depression. And I found out that St. Francis called himself Brother Donkey or Brother Ass because he found himself so stubborn to follow God. And I found St. Benedict, who wrote on Christian perfection. He wrote the text that monks use to this very day of how to live the most complete, most fulfilling, most perfect Christian life. And you know what his famous quote is? The end of Christian perfection is that of none. That when he looked at his own heart, he said, it'll never happen in me. And so I was oddly encouraged that everyone's a failure. (laughs) That everyone struggles between these two poles of guilt and apathy. But every once in a while, while you're swinging between the two, you meet this sweet moment of what life is supposed to be life. It's not focused on you. It's focused on God. And it's full of worship and joy and peace. What I did learn from this cycle that is in me and written all over the pages of Christian history is this. That everyone struggles with this. But the difference between some who we now consider saints and others Who never really figure it out. Is that they learn how to struggle with it. Today I just. I'm not going to pretend like you're not going to go through that. Or like I'm not going to go through that cycle. Back and forth. But today I want to talk about how can we struggle with this. How can we wrestle to keep as much of our lives. In this mean where it's not about us on either end. But it's really about God. Historically. God gave the ancient Israelites a really vivid way of of protecting themselves in this. And it was the day of atonement. They said the best way to deal with both your guilt and your apathy is this. You show up, you're going to confess all of your sins publicly, and then we're going to bleed out a goat. It's really hard to not be affected when you're bleeding out a goat. Just I don't know if any of you have done that before, but let's just say that. And, uh, in this day, this is the day where, where you're supposed to literally, the day of atonement, you're supposed to disgorge everything that's wrong with you. You confess all of your sins, how messed up your life is, how messed up our world is. And Leviticus chapter 16 walks us through in this gruesome, gruesome detail. About the two goats, one's a scapegoat, one's going to be killed. It's just, it's awful. And God literally has them lay their hands on this goat, put all of their curses, all of their all of their sins, everything that's wrong with them on these goats. And one goat is going to get bled out. And one's going to get sent out into the wilderness and shoved off of a cliff. And this is God's way of forcing people to deal with these two problems. It was graphic, and it was bloody, and it was gory, and God considered it absolutely necessary. But I want you to listen to something. It wasn't necessary for God's sake. God doesn't need goats to be killed. We need goats to be killed. It was necessary for the Israelites to remember that their sins deserve death. It's hard to stay apathetic. When you just see a goat get slaughtered because you confessed your sins on it, it is necessary for them to remember that their sins are forgiven. That after they sent that goat out of town, the priest pronounced over them, You're clean. You're forgiven. Your sins are gone. Yeah, you know that feeling um, when you're really, really sick? You get food poisoning, is the classic one for me, where you know that you're going to vomit. And you don't want to. I mean, there's nothing worse than thinking, oh, here it comes. And yet, and yet you all know that the moment you throw up, you're going to feel so much better. That's what the Day of Atonement's like. You're going to disgorge everything that's wrong with you. And the moment it's gone... You're going to purge yourself and you're going to hear God say over you, you're clean, you're forgiving, you're mine. You can let go now. You can stop being apathetic and you can stop feeling your guilt. And on this day, there was a song that they sang. A lot of the Psalms that are written were were designed for specific festival days. And Psalm 103 was the song that they sang on the Day of Atonement. Psalm 103. That's what we're going to talk about today. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. I want you to notice something. Who is David talking to? His soul! He's talking to himself. He's talking to his own soul. He's, He's pleading with his soul. My soul, my heart, My inmost being, you need to listen to this. Now, this might seem a little odd to some of you, but we all talk to ourselves, don't we? We all say things to ourselves. In fact, the Psalms are full of this. If you read Psalm 42, it's most famous. It's it's this line where the psalmist, where David... no, not David, son of Korah, seems to think that he's, he's actually fighting with himself. Psalm 42 goes like this. Why are you downcast? Why are you depressed right now, oh, my soul? Put your faith in God. Put your hope in God. What are you doing? Psalm 77 is famous. This guy's having this long conversation with himself. He says, all these questions are piling on. He's asking himself, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has, have his promises failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he has He in anger withheld his compassion? And then what does he say to himself? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on your works. I'm going to tell myself all the stuff that I know about you that's true even though these questions are coming. Have you ever been in that place where your mind knows what's right and what's good and what's true, but in your heart you have nothing but questions and doubts and guilt, or much worse, apathy? I have. And the Psalms make me think that I'm in good company. So David preaches to himself. Watch this. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why are you headed in this direction, my soul? Don't you know what he's done? Have you really forgotten everything that God's done for you? Have you seen the day of atonement? He forgives all your sins. And he heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed. What's David doing here? Do you think David really forgot all this stuff? I mean, if if you read the rest of the scriptures, you get the sense that David's like sitting around with his harp most days. Like... Meditating on God's word, talking about God's word, writing about God's word. If not, he's in a cave getting chased by someone, and he's doing the exact same thing. His life is all about these details. He didn't forget any of this. So why does he say, forget not all his benefits? The Hebrews, um, if you read throughout the scriptures, you find that they're convinced that a right memory... Is crucial and essential to a right faith in God. Let's put it this way. Okay, they they viewed it. Jeremiah 17. Our heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. That if you just listen to what your heart, what comes out of your heart, you know what you're going to listen to? A lot of lies. If you don't buy this, um, let's talk about how your memory works. I want you all to think back Well, if you can, a decade or two. Think back of all the comments that people have made about you. How many negative comments can you bring to mind? How many positive ones? Why is it that one harsh word or one criticism will stick in your mind like a shard of glass forever? But hundreds of positive things fall right off. Our minds, our hearts are twisted and deceitful. Do you know how jacked up this is? Why are you depressed, my soul? Why are you doing this? Don't you know what God did for you? Put your hope in God. Have you really forgotten all that stuff that God did for you? If you uh a lot of you don't actually carry Bibles anymore, although I made that odd comment the other week so you probably did this week. Um, <laughs> if you pull out your Bible app though, and you do that quick search function for the words remember and forget, you'll find that it comes up 300 sometimes between the two of them. And if you look at those 300, sometimes you'll find that about a third of them are God telling you, remember, 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 I forgave you. Remember, remember, I heal your diseases. Remember, I redeemed you. Remember, I crowned you with love. Remember, I satisfy your desires. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget this do in remembrance of me. Don't forget what I've done for you. Remember, remember a hundred times. Why is God so obsessed with us remembering? Because all of these things that he's done for us, all these great things that he's done for us, all those times when he saved you, and when he told you he loved you, and when he proved it to you, no matter how great they are, if you let them set long enough, they become just part of the landscape, right? So Jenny and I, when uh on our honeymoon, I was dirt poor, I spent like, I don't even know how I lived during that time. I really don't. I spent like more than I had to buy her a wedding ring. And, uh, and then I actually had to borrow money from my brother and I'm driving this old hoopty and I'm literally I'd make enough tips that week to buy food. And that's how I lived. And so I scraped together a little bit of money. And so we had a honeymoon in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I could afford. It was nice. But I have to admit, we're in this little town in Canada, the Canadian Rockies, and we were probably the only tourists there. And uh and the place, the reason why it was so cheap is cuz it wasn't yet finished. They didn't say that online. <laughs> but never mind, we were young and in love and it was wonderful. And so we would go out in the afternoons or evenings on this this little town square and it was we're the only tourists there and there's You know, a bunch of people just milling around town, doing their business, running errands. And we would see this in the middle of town. The three sisters. It's fantastic. And Jimmy and I would be stopped. Our mouths open like this is majestic. This is magical. This is awesome. But you know what? We were the only people doing that. Lots of other people saw the exact same thing. Lots of other people walking around right then, but for them, it had been there so long that they were just out running errands. It had lost its majesty, its awe. They weren't impressed anymore. I think the same thing happens in our souls. You know, that uh the thing that was once awe-inspiring that changed your life, it's not just part of the landscape. The fact that God broke into history and set you free from slavery to your past. That thing at one time brought you to tears and to your knees and worship. Oh, of course I know that. That's just normal. The word, the Lord loves you. At one time stirred something so deeply in your hearts that you were willing to give up anything and go anywhere because you were just controlled and consumed by his love. Now it's just words. Like something you'd say at the end of a phone conversation. Love you. Bye. David will have none of this. He's not just talking to himself. He's pleading with his soul. Keep God's promises in the forefront of your mind. Never get over what he's done for you. Never let his grace seem something small. Never let his love become just part of the landscape. It has to be in front of your mind. He pleads with his heart. Oh, my soul. Worship God. Do you know how great this is? Just, um, by the way, let me notice, let me pull something here. He's actually going to quote Exodus chapter 34 here and he's going to do some other stuff. Just to be technical here, what David's doing he's not just talking to himself, he's preaching. And as a preacher, I can, I can appreciate that. He is taking God's truth and God's word and speaking it to his own soul. Let me say that the most important sermon you're going to hear this week is not the one I'm giving you right now. It's going to be the one that you speak to yourself this week. To your own soul. You have a little more sway than I do. Of course, the problem with preaching is that most of it's ineffective and dare I say boring. I just happen to know a a thing or two about preaching ineffective, boring sermons. If you really want to preach... An ineffective and boring sermon. Yeah. If you want it to just not to bounce right off someone's soul, the the two things you do is one, you do make it boring and this is how you make it boring. All you do is you state the facts. God loves you. He forgives you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And it's just one of those facts. But you you never you never let people struggle What does that mean for me? What did it cost for him? You never let them see Jesus Christ die on the cross because that's gruesome. You just tell them, Jesus died for your sins. Let's move on. It's all about the facts. The next thing you do is you preach moralism. If you really want to be ineffective in preaching, this is what you do. You say, stop it, you bad people. You're so bad. Why do you do that? Stop it. It's easy to say that you believe the gospel, that I'm saved because of what Jesus Christ did, not because I'm good or moral, and then turn around and say, if I want to become like Jesus Christ, I have to try really hard to be good and moral. But that's not the way it works. Do you understand that the more you preach to yourself moralism, the more you say, follow these rules, the worse the whole thing gets? If you follow the rules and you're successful, You'll be filled with pride. You'll no longer need God and you'll become apathetic. That's the problem that the Pharisees face throughout the New Testament. But if you say follow these rules and you can't, you know what? You'll be crushed by guilt. And you'll think you'll have to run away from God. And you become full of self-loathing. Both of these, all that does when you preach moralism, all it does is it makes everything worse. You didn't follow the rules, you bad, bad person. Now, how many of us have had that sermon preached in our mind? I broke the rules again. God must be disappointed. I broke the rules again. That sermon will destroy you. But watch how David deals with it. He knows how to preach the gospel. Verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now watch this. See, verse starting in verse 8, he's going to quote Exodus chapter 34. Let, let let me just, Exodus chapter 34. Moses, as old as dirt, standing on the side of a mountain, dense cloud coming down, fire, earthquakes. I mean, this is the moment, right? And what's the first thing God says when he's standing there, Ten Commandments in his hand? The Lord says, pronounces, for all to hear, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And this is what David's referencing here. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. But then watch what David writes. He says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. And all of you should be like, what? Because Exodus chapter 34 says this. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's what God does. But David says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I mean, this is this is a big deal Exodus chapter 34, at least from the Old Testament perspective, is like it's the John 316 of the Old Testament. Right. It's like if you get the the end of that wrong, it's like, you know, you know, the Great Commission. Go ye therefore to some nations that you prefer. You know, if you misquote it, everyone's going to be like, wait a second, David, what are you doing? You just misquoted this. He judges us. He will hold everyone responsible for their sins. David, you got it wrong. But David says, I know God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He says, I know that God is just. I know that the wages of sin are death, of sin is death. And I know that God hates sin. And I know that I deserve all of this, but he just witnessed the day of atonement. And he says, today, on this great and terrible day of atonement, I also know that though I deserve all of that, I don't get it. God just let it be poured out on a substitute. Do you see that? Both are somehow true. That God is just, he hates sin, he will judge it, but he doesn't put the judgment on David. He puts it on a goat, on a substitute. So when David stands there on that day, he sees it and he hears it and he feels it and he remembers the grace of God. I'm the one who deserves to be crushed, forsaken and cursed. But another is crushed and forsaken and cursed in my place. I'll tell you, friends, that's what we need to preach to ourselves every day. When David's heart is full of lies, and it says to me, God could never love you. You're filthy. God would never want to be with you. When when guilt crushes David, what does he preach to his soul? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for, from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And when his heart lies to him and says, God must think you're great. I mean, heck, if God loves you, you must be pretty great. Do you know what he says to his soul? For he, God, knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And this place remembers it no more. The I am nothing. And yet, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. His righteousness with their children's children. I am nothing, and yet God loves me with an everlasting love. How does David break through to his own soul? So that he doesn't fall into apathy, thinking he's great, and he doesn't fall into guilt, thinking he should hate himself. He preaches the gospel to himself. He pleads with his soul to remember that he doesn't deserve anything. But God gives him everything. And it takes the focus off of him and puts it on himself. I think God's coin now. <laughs> Special message for us. Exodus 34 is absolutely true. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. God hates sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's exactly what you and I deserve. But today, you and I can know that we get what we don't deserve. And why can we know that? I'm the one who deserves to be crushed and forsaken and cursed. But when we see Jesus Christ on the cross, what the Day of Atonement was really all about, we realize that he is crushed and he is forsaken and he is cursed on our behalf, God Himself is the substitute. My God is crushed and forsaken and cursed in my place. So the gospel, just like uh, just like anything though, can become part of the landscape of our lives. This isn't some magical incantation that if I would just think about Jesus dying on the cross, suddenly all my problems will go away. And that's why we have to meet together. That's why every week we come here and I want to remind you, we should remind each other. And friends, you have to preach to yourself. Jesus Christ died for me. You need to see him hanging on the cross and know that that's what you deserve. That God absolutely hates sin and I am worth nothing. I'm like a, uh, I'm like a grass of the field. But God's love is with me forever. When you take your eyes off the cross, your eyes will go immediately to yourself. But when you put your eyes on the cross, you realize that my guilt is removed. And my pride is destroyed. And my God is everything. Pray with me.